Coming up next on Tech News Weekly, it's me, Jason Howell, starting the show off talking with Stu Tartarone, who is the principal member of technical staff at AT&T. Why are we talking to him? Because he was there when the first cell phone network was brought online 40 years ago. Amazing. I am Micah Sargent, and I bring on Mark Gurman of Bloomberg to talk about Apple's upcoming Scary Fast October event. Yes. And then uh, social networks. Are you familiar with uh, T2? Maybe Pebble? Well, they both don't exist anymore. I talk about that. And my story of the week is all about how Google has reportedly uh, at least planned to do a lot, both in lobbying and in practicality, to keep Apple from being a default search engine on its platforms. Mm. All that coming up next on Tech News Weekly. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This This is Tech News Weekly, episode 309, recorded Thursday, October 26th, 2023. Cell phones, the origin story. This episode of Tech News Weekly is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Good news. If you're hiring, you've got help. ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter works for you to find great candidates fast. Its smart technology identifies qualified candidates for you, and you can invite your top choices to apply. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash TNW. And by Duo. Protect against breaches with a leading access management suite, providing strong multi-layered defenses to only allow legitimate users in. For any organization concerned about being breached and in need of a solution fast, Duo quickly enables strong security and improves user productivity. Visit cs.co slash twit today for a free trial. Hello and welcome to Tech News Weekly, the show where every week we talk to and about the people making and breaking the tech news. I am one of your hosts, Micah Sargent. And I'm the other guy, Jason Howell. Excited to talk a little history today. Yeah, let's uh, put on our history wigs. (laughs) I forgot my wig, Micah. Oh no, I did. Sorry. Hold on. (laughs) Instead, I'm wearing my hair. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, today we're going to talk a little bit about the history of, well, cell phones and smart, I mean, smartphones by extension. But really, I mean, when we think about a technology that has really kind of become so engulfed uh, around what we do on Mm -hmm. a regular basis here in the U.S., around the world, business is driven by it, personal lives are driven by it. I mean, the cell phone is incredibly important, uh, to say the least. And the way that it's developed since it began, it's just really fascinating to me to to, uh, get the opportunity to talk to someone who was really there in the beginning. Stu Tartarone was one of the engineers on the team at AT AT&T 40 years ago that helped develop the technology, the underlying technology of the first cell phone call. Wow. And I believe even has has some some props to show off as well. But Stu, thank you so much for uh, (laughs) taking the time to talk with us today about this. It's amazing to meet you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to meet you guys. And thank you for joining us here today in Middletown, New Jersey. All right on. Uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's wonderful to get you on here and, and talk to you about the history of something that we I think it's easy to take for granted. And I'm super excited and super interested to hear kind of your take, which we'll get to in a little bit 
about the progress, if we want to call it that, or kind of the development of the technology that you helped design and and launch 40 years ago. But let's let's kind of start in the beginning um, and talk about what you were working on exactly, you know, well, 40, 41 years ago mm-hmm. when you were hired by AT&T, what were you tasked with exactly? How did that materialize um, into, you know, what we have today, I suppose? So I came to join a small team, but it was actually back in 1972, which is probably a little over 50 years ago uh, at Bell Labs, which has now evolved AT&T Labs, yeah. uh, to conceive the first cellular system. It's something that didn't exist before. And think about coming out of grad school, uh, coming into working on something that no one saw before, no one touched, uh, and being foisted into this incredible team uh, to, to, to develop and evolve it. So the first real job that I was given was to work on a market survey to understand if there was a market for this type of communication, which was initially focused on in a vehicle, not not a handheld. Right. Uh, and uh, it was oriented more toward businesses. So we went out and we did a very professional market survey, hired a market research company to do it, questionnaires, live interviews, got to sit on the other side of the glass. And as a result of it, uh, the conclusion was that there was no market for this type of technology back in 1973. Okay, so no market back in 1973, and yet the decision was to kind of move forward with it. What, like, what was the rationale there? Like, I imagine with these market studies, you know, you want to know, like, is, is there juice worth, worth squeezing for? Like, is there a there there? Like, how did, how did that transpire? Well, you know, this is part of what we've always done at at and You know, think about the transistor, information theory, charge couple devices, solar, you know, solar cells. These are things that we thought would be important, significant for the evolution of communications. So we were fortunate to be able to move forward with it, understanding that, yeah, well, maybe no one saw a market today, but we really thought there was a huge opportunity moving forward. And fortunately, we had the support of our company to do that. Yeah, no kidding. And the, and the foundation uh, around it. And um, I, I mean, clearly, like, I'm, I'm very grateful that uh, things went the way they did, because mm-hmm. I couldn't imagine our lives yeah. <laughs> you know, without that. It's so foundational, uh, fundamental to what we do. Who exactly was this technology envisioned for at that time? Like you mm-hmm. said, it would it would be in the vehicle. Is this I mean, really, I imagine the answer is is business uh, folk. Were, were they even asking for something like this? Well, nobody was really asking for it. And you know what I think it boils down to? Sometimes people can't ask for something they don't see, they don't yeah. know. Yeah, mm-hmm. In true. fact, the result of that market survey said people were very interested in, in more pagers, and more modern technology pagers. So that was the in technology at the time to communicate with people when they were distant from their homes or offices. But the focus was on the business market because it was a vehicular service. And the notion of uh, insurance people, in fact, our first commercial customer was actually uh, we had an insurance company being able to be on the road communicating with their clients communicating with their office, delivery people, uh, craft people, maintenance people. That was, you know, that was the initial focus of why this technology was built. And I'm, 
I believe that you have some sort of a, a prototype or something. The cell phone, <laughs> is this the cell phone that you worked on initially that was inside <clears throat> of a vehicle? Is that, oh my goodness. Wow. That thing. That's fascinating. <clears throat> so, I love it. This, so how cell phones were in those days is that in the car, in the, you know, where people sat and drove the car, this would be mounted on, you know, on, usually on the hump in the front of the car, uh, in the back, wired in the back to a transmitter device and with antennas on top. And, uh, and you could see quite, you know, large compared to what we even <laughs> see today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but, one of the concepts that came into developing this was the notion that you would put your number in first and then you would press this button called send and pick the handset up, which wasn't how people used phones in those days. Was people would pick them up, they get dial tone, they mm-hmm. get dial. And, you know, this concept, you know, think about this is how people make phone calls today came out of our, 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 our early planning. Wow, that's so true. I honestly had not even thought of that. That yes, I if I'm going to make a call, I would type it in and then hit the green button to start the call right. versus just right. yes. and then yes. shuk, shuk, <laughs> right. that is, that's wow. Well, and and especially the to the time period that we're talking about here, um like like you bring up a really good point. Like I remember in in my home, you know, and, and, you know, I was born in the mid 70s. I remember having in our home a rotary dial and not just a a push button dial. So I have to imagine there were probably some prototypes of this thing that may have began with, you know, (laughs) in the realm of the rotary dial and and yet, you know, kind of kind of progressed from there. This is super fascinating. And then once it was. Well, actually, let me let me take a step back. In order for this technology, like the actual hardware that you just showed off, to work, there has to be an underlying network for it to be supported on. How, like, what's what's uh, what's the development of that look like at a time? Because I think I, I think about the now, and I just think about the immense amount of cell towers that are required everywhere in order to support the network. Uh, you know, the the demand that we have now, which obviously is very uh, you know an, an insane amount higher than it was back then. What did that network technology look by look like forty years ago? So you know, so so think about the concept of cellular, uh, and we used to use an analogy that maybe today people don't relate to is that the original mobile telephone systems that existed had a had an antenna trans an antenna in the middle of the city it'd be broadcasting at high power whatever frequencies were used there couldn't be used for miles away just like in tv back in those days mm-hmm. channel two could be used in san francisco could not be used until you got down to los angeles again the concept is cellular which comes from uh doug ring and and, and ray young in the 40s the concept came up was to take uh take the available spectrum, use low power, and reuse those channels multiple times within a given area. And that's where you get the huge capacity out of that. But for that to happen, and again, think about it, it was a vehicular service. As cars roamed around, drove, roamed, drove around the city, you'd have to be able to switch them from one channel to another channel, mm-hmm. a concept we called handoff. So what sat behind that network was uh, a switch, switching machine, uh, AT&T and Bell Labs were first with the electronic switching. Uh, and 
a network of cell towers and cell sites, as we call them, and the communication. And one of the things I got to work on as probably my second job was distributed architecture. The distributed architecture between a uh, switch between cell sites, between mobiles. And one of the things that came out of this was this is one of the first systems to ever use message-based signaling, uh, which was, which was you know, just a, a huge advance in those days and, and really made everything come together and work. On your team, uh, when you reached this milestone 40 years ago of the first cell call, cell phone call being made, like, how how significant did that moment feel at the time? Like, I have to imagine you wouldn't in a million years have guessed kind of the way things have progressed over the last 40 years. But in that moment, did that feel as significant as maybe we would look back now and place significance on that now? Well, it was significant, but probably to us who worked on the system was probably even more significant was probably in the mid 70s. 1977-78, when we were actually building and tr- testing and trialing the mm-hmm. system uh, in Chicago. And the, probably the most significant moment for me was actually going out there uh, and making the first call, picking up that handset I just showed you. And this is something we worked on for a number of years. And, and it was just huge high about a- actually being able to call friends and call family using that system. And if you fast forward from there to 1983, the significance of that was that now there was the go-ahead, that we could start deploying this on a nationwide basis. So it was a big deal then uh, in that moment in time in October of 1983, but no one could have conceived what would happen going forward. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those one of those kind of milestones where you realize, you know, telephone technology has been one thing for so many decades at that point. And then now this requirement of being tethered to a wall or a line coming out of a wall or something like that. That's just that is the potential to not be there anymore. Here we are 40 years later. Cell phone technology, like I said earlier, I mean, we've all got them and, you know, we all take it for granted. Uh, insane maturation over the, that time period. Only 40 years and we've gone from that to this. Yes. Yeah. And not to mention the miniaturization yeah. aspect. I mean, I have a phone in the other room. It's I mean, it's literally that small, you know, and yeah. that's kind of its its claim to fame is that it's a tiny cell phone. But um, what have been some of the more kind of surprising developments, milestones, things that you've noticed about this technology as it's evolved over time that have really stood out for you to be like, man, that's, you know, I don't know that I ever saw that coming, but, you know, it's just got to be so cool that you helped create something that has had this much development and made such an impact. There are two aspects. One is the devices themselves. And as you mentioned, the miniaturization of, and, and think about the, you know, the first, portable cellular phones were this brick, which is heavy, uh, expensive, you know, not something you'd stick in your pocket. The evolution of that phone to something that you can pick up now and everyone sort of has to, uh, to the initial handheld phones to, you know, a significant moment that putting a camera in this device. Yeah, Think no about kidding. the big deal thing that happened with there. And I'd be remiss without mentioning the iPhone, which sure. which sort of set off this whole, you know, this whole notion of, you know, you know, of connectivity. But, and to that connectivity word, the other thing was, and, and people look at these devices, but 
but it's the network that sits behind it. The evolution from 1G to 2G to 5G, the ability to carry not just voice traffic, to go to digital voice, to carry data, and now to carry video over that. Those are some of the things that I don't think we quite foresaw back in the day when we started working on this. Well, yeah, indeed. And now, you know, through exactly what you're talking about, I mean, a combination of we've got the the hardware and we've got the hardware tapping into this very robust kind of data, wireless data network. Now we have the ability to do things that we probably, again, take largely for granted. That was pure science fiction. You know, video calls, like actually being able to see wirelessly on a screen and talk with someone with very you know ultra low latency over this wireless connection. I mean, that's just incredible what we've done, what you, I say we, as if I had any part in this, but what you have helped kick off here. Uh, um, and again, you never could have conceived that yeah. back back in the day. But, but and, and, you know, think about, you know, sort of where we're going you know, with this. And it actually buzzed one other prop I have here. This yeah. was, and it's hard for you guys to see this, this was the Alexander Graham patent. Oh, from wow. 1876, yeah. which sort of set this all off. Yeah. And while it was in those days and today, it's the whole connectivity. And so think about which what sits behind all these devices as they evolve. And the connectivity today, the seamless connectivity, whether it's from fiber in the ground, whether it's wireless, whether, whether satellite, that really is a big deal that I think we see ahead of us because that empowers empowers everything that we do going forward. 100%. Stu, this has been an honor and a, pl- a privilege Amazing. to get to chat with you about yeah. this. Thank you so much for carving out a few minutes out of yeah. your morning. Uh, well, I guess it's afternoon there. Uh, well, it is afternoon. And thank you guys. And I want to invite you to, to, you know, to come visit us in Middletown because we have an incredible museum here, Ooh. which shows 150 years of the spirit of innovation that has captured AT&T through all that time. It'd be a great Great live show for you guys. There you go. Come here and see that. Yeah, I did actually see some clips and 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 some stuff online about that. It looks like a fascinating uh, kind of uh, museum to to pick through. So, uh, thank you for that, Stu. Thank you so much, Stu Tartarone, principal member of technical staff at AT and T. It's a pleasure, Stu. Very nice to thank meet you. you thank so you for coming on. Same here. Great to meet you guys. All right, keep Have up the great world changing work. Yes, indeed. <laughs> thank you. All, All right, guys. take care, Stu. That's amazing. Love that. All right. Uh, Coming up next, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Google's plan to basically stop Apple in its pursuit of search or getting serious about it. Rather, that's coming up. But first, this episode of Tech News Weekly is brought to you by Wix web agencies out there. You're going to love this one. Let me tell you about Wix Studio. It's a platform that gives agencies total creative freedom to deliver complex client sites while still smashing deadlines. You might be asking how. Well, first, let's talk about the advanced design capabilities. With Wix Studio, you can build unique layouts with a revolutionary grid experience and watch as elements scale proportionally by default. No code animations. They actually add sparks of delight, while custom CSS gives total design control. But it doesn't stop there. Bring ambitious client projects to life in any industry with a fully integrated suite of business solutions from e-com to events, bookings, and more. 
and extend the capabilities even further with hundreds of APIs and integrations. And you know what else? The workflows just make sense. There's the built-in AI tools, the centralized workspace, the on-canvas collaborating, the reuse of assets across sites, the seamless client handover. And that's not all. That's just scratching the surface. Find out more at Wix.com slash studio. We thank them for their support of Tech News Weekly. Okay, Google kind of, you know, their business is so defined by search. Mm-hmm. What about Apple? So this is a this is a really uh, good piece over on the New York Times from Nico Grant. Uh, if I remember correctly, Nico has actually been on the show before. Uh, but Nico Grant put together a piece talking about... Uh, some internal documents that the New York Times has seen regarding Google and Apple's relationship for search. And by golly, if that's not the mm. coolest animation oh, on yeah, the New York look Times at page, it. where it's kind of like uh, a parasite of Google sticking into Apple's Apple it's, logo. Apple is the heart and Google is all the arteries pumping blood through it. Yes. And <laughs> so this is... Um, this is kind of a, a an ongoing understanding of Google and Apple's relationship that lays the foundation here. Um, Google and Apple have actually worked together for years when it comes to search for Apple's products and services. Okay. Um, Way back, even before iOS was around, uh, Google and Apple had a partnership for Safari search so that you could use uh, the Safari browser and by default use Google as the search engine for that browser. Uh, That partnership has continued and continued and continued. Um, In 2021, however, um, Google saw Apple make an announcement that its search tool which is a built-in search tool that many people will be familiar with if you've ever used a Mac or if you've used an iPhone. It's called Spotlight. And on the Mac, it is the way that a lot of people launch apps. It's a way that they can search their own documents. But in 2021, as the New York Times piece talks about, uh, Apple made some improvements to Spotlight such that it would provide what they called richer web results. And the concern was that if Apple was doing its own uh, search results with that tool and that if you, uh, you know, use that, that it is going to be, um, it's going to kind of stop the Google partnership from being lucrative, right? Mm. And so Google, seeing that Apple was kind of ramping up its, its, uh, its ability in search decided that they were going to try and make uh, an impact there. So it's important to understand that the Google Apple partnership is kind of an ad revenue sharing uh, partnership. Google paid Apple in 2021 around $18 billion so that Apple would keep Google as the default search engine for iPhones. That means that if I hop into the Safari browser on my iPhone and I type something into that top bar, or now it's on the bottom, technically, um, then I would be able to find something using Google's search engine. Um, That 
makes a lucrative deal for Google because Google gets the ad revenue from those searches. Uh, but Apple, of course, is partaking in that as well because it is the platform that Google is using. So now you understand kind of the 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 partnership exactly and what it what it entails. But we go from there um, to internal documents that the New York Times has seen that suggest that Google, upon seeing how uh, Apple might want to get into search itself in a in a bigger way, um, would find a way to try to get Apple iPhone users to use Google's Chrome browser on iPhone and also its own tools on iPhone, and then also leverage governments to further keep Apple from kind of breaking into the search game. So Hmm. it's important to understand the kind of two-pronged approach here, right? Um, Google did, I remember this, was really heavily pushing uh, a tool, which was an app on the iPhone that was kind of like Google for iPhone. And it would work as as a little widget and you could have it display information and then it was an easy way to do a google search and they spent a lot of of money and effort on trying to advertise that and push that forward i can remember uh using the google chrome browser on ios and seeing it you know being very uh forthright about you should use this browser this is the browser you should use Mm -hmm. um i returned to safari you know it was it It was only there just as a way to kind of test it for me. Um, But of course, a lot of people just stick with what is there on their device. Was this at the time when, because there was a time when iOS didn't allow you to assign a different default browser, right? Yes, exactly. And so people had to kind of go out of their way in order to use Chrome. Exactly. You'd have to go out of your way to use Chrome. And so you would, you know, they, they did a bunch of different things so that you would, you know, have the app somewhere where it's easy to tap on and yeah. you know, try to do what they could at the time. And then, yes, now you can, you can set your default browser uh, and, and keep it to Chrome. Uh, and then I can remember it, you know, walking you through the steps of doing that if you'd like to as well. Um, we'll show you how to leave. Don't to come worry. to the dark yes. side. Join <laughs> us. Uh, but the company was also kind of looking at its own internal ways to not have such reliance on the Safari browser and maybe on this deal, you know, that this deal doesn't need to be as lucrative. Um, But what I also thought was interesting was that um, Nico Grants kind of points to the fact that it's, it, it ends up being kind of a hypocritical argument because what Google, according to these documents decided to do was, use an upcoming European law, which is now in place, uh, the DMA, and try to suggest that because Safari is set as the default browser on the iPhone, it means that Google can't compete in the space. Mm. But at the same time, Google wants its search engine to be the default browser Mm-hmm. on the iPhone and when they're question when the company is questioned about that they say well it the person can go in and change it if they want to they can change it away from the default so it's not really a problem that it's the default yet 
they're over on this other side. They're arguing that because Safari is set as the default, people aren't going to change it. Uh-huh. So they're trying to hold those two competing ideas they want at the same all... time. Yeah, um, <laughs> they want to have their cake and then and eat it too. Yes, yes, <laughs> and it ends up being kind of a, a nefarious thing, honestly, because they were looking at you know the lobbying uh, efforts for, uh, for the European Union to try and push through that Spotlight should be listed as part of the DMA, the Digital Markets Act, um, so that it was also regulated as a search engine provider. So ultimately, um, it's unclear, as this New York Times piece points out, what choices the uh, companies like search leads decided to make, what the executives decided to do, and what you know techniques they ran forward with. But... Uh, yeah, there's at, there was at least some level of of going. Okay, if Spotlight's going to become a search engine, um, then it is it's an issue, uh, and we need to figure out how we can make that happen, and and how we can continue to dominate the search. There, um, there was a. Quote two from the piece, it says, Google executives figured that if users had to make a choice, the number of European iPhone users who selected Chrome could triple. And what that refers to is if the European Union, uh, through the DMA Act, that's that's repetitive, through the DMA, mm-hmm. um, said, when you set up a new iPhone during the startup phase, you need to give users the choice of what is their default browser, as opposed mm-hmm. to it just being a setting that you go to later. Right. Then Google executives <clears throat> estimated that it would triple the number of Chrome users because a lot of people are using Chrome for work, so they're familiar with the name Chrome. Right, or they, they're logged into they're that. They're logged into Chrome. Right, so syncing. Exactly, syncing is there. And they may not be familiar. Like, I know that if I were to ask um, a number of family members what browser they use they're not going to say safari it's mm. going to say the one on my iphone if they don't ask what what do you mean browser what are you talking about yeah are they actually but, going to know that the browser they're yeah. using the default is exactly safari. safari so if they're presented with these options chrome i think is a more known yeah. name overall oh. because again work i know that browser uh so and the, oh yeah that's the google one right that's what i use yeah um so i do think that that is a good estimate that mm. that you know, it would significantly increase the number of Chrome users. So, you know, game respect game, but also yikes at the sort of two pronged approach of trying to get governments to help keep Google as the, uh, you know, the, the, the leader and the winner mm-hmm. while also trying to accuse Apple of yeah. doing that themselves. It's just, that's icky to me. Yeah, I know. And, 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 you know, honestly, like when I was hearing you kind of spell, you know, demonstrate that Google is kind of walking both sides of the line. It just, it just harkens back for me of the kind of kind of the schizophrenic kind of attitude of Google in a lot of its business mm-hmm. where it, sometimes the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is right, doing, right, right. you know, and this makes yeah. a whole lot of sense over here. They're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then they do the same thing, but in a different way, because it makes a whole lot of sense over here. And um, yeah, it's just like, that's just indicative of how Google seems to do business. They yeah. never really are quite on the same page or they, there is something to, you know, something in it for them to play that defense. Yeah. As a consumer, I feel like we should have choice. I feel yep. like choice is good. And 
I don't mind an onboarding experience that says, which of these, you know, is there a browser that you would like as your default? Great. Is there a search engine that you would like as your default? Great. Yeah. Like, I see nothing wrong with that. And if that's what we're headed to here is that, we, you know, we already kind of have, at least here in the U.S., we don't have that. You don't have it on your iPhone when you set it up, right? No, the, not, no, the, not the, the prompt at the beginning. Because no. I know at the EU, in the EU, they made that change some years ago. I can't remember exactly when it was. Um, and I've kind of always been like, why not? Why not bring that here? Right. Like, it just seems like it would really alleviate a lot of a lot of issues. I agree. Yeah, I think so. I think so. <laughs> and I, I have a hard time seeing the downside to that for users. Anyways, I understand why Google or, you know, why Apple might not want that or why Google might not want that, depending on which side of their exactly. business stands and to lose it's, from it's, it. But uh, yeah, exactly. It's as much it's business. And then I yeah. think um, Apple, because part of its business is to be a privacy minded company, they would argue that giving users the choice without the full knowledge of how much data Google collects would be um, a detriment to their privacy. But again, that's because part of Apple's business is to be that privacy minded company. So sure. I ultimately, I'm not trying to paint one company as uh, higher minded than another. It all comes down to what is your business and how do you sell your devices? And yeah. part of Apple's whole thing is like, we want to protect our users' privacy. And so I think that is part of the argument that they make in the United States, whether it's at the root of what they really feel, you know, mm -hmm. is, is something I can't answer. Yeah. But um, I, I can definitely see that as part of the argument that, well, no, because if you do it through Safari, then we've got all these uh, no tracking things in place and et cetera, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But anyway... Um, we will continue to watch this uh, ongoing trial with Google and continue to hear uh, all sorts of arguments as to why. I think Google's turn starts today. They start to prevent, present evidence today uh, in their defense, in mm. its defense, to say that it is not a monopoly and hasn't, you know, flexed its monopoly uh, arms. So we'll this, see. Uh, this case is going on. It's going yeah. on for a while. Yeah, it's going to take some time. Yeah multi-month probably yeah. yeah indeed all right well we've got uh mark german coming up here in a few short minutes uh from bloomberg to talk all about apple's seemed like a pretty like a surprise event it yeah. really kind of came out of nowhere it seemed like everybody was really surprised about definitely it. gonna ask mark about that but first let's take a break thank the sponsor of this episode of tech news weekly brought to you by zip recruiter uh we would like to give a shout out that's right to all those whose job it is to hire employees because we know it's it's not easy out there for you from small business owners uh going to job fairs to the hr directors who are vetting hundreds of applications you have one of the toughest jobs that there is like i said it's not easy but what if i were to tell you that there's something that can make your whole hiring process faster and easier and you know what's coming because if you don't know by now, it's ZipRecruiter. Right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash TNW. ZipRecruiter saves you time. Instead of doing all the hiring groundwork yourself, which, yeah, it takes a lot of time, ZipRecruiter actually does that for you. So once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, it sends it to over 100 job sites so you reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter's powerful technology scans thousands of resumes for you and uh, then identifies people whose skills and experience match your job. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds and sends you available great matches 
for your jobs. You only get those good ones, the ones that really work. Once you review your list of the most qualified candidates for your job, you can then easily invite your top choices to apply so they're more likely to apply sooner. ZipRecruiter has helped make hiring faster and easier for businesses of all sizes. In fact, over 3.8 million businesses have come to ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Uh, So you just got to check them out for yourself. I swear they're going to save you time and hassle. Hiring heroes, let ZipRecruiter help make your job easier. Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. So see for yourself. Go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash TNW. One more time for the back, ZipRecruiter.com slash TNW. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire, and we thank them for their support of Tech News Weekly. All righty, folks. Yes, Apple has announced an event for Monday, uh, that's October 30th, uh, called Scary Fast. And joining us today to talk about it is the one who was doubted, but the one who predicted it all, Mark Gurman of Bloomberg. Welcome back to the show, Mark. How's it going, guys? Thanks for having me, as always. Yeah, Yeah. pleasure to have you join us today. Uh, So, you know what? Let's get right into it. Let's start with the name. Um, how does one interpret scary fast? And does it give us a hint at what Apple might announce? Absolutely. I think it gives us a hint at new chips. Obviously, the M3 has been a long time coming. And so I think we'll finally see those there. Uh, and then scary and fast and the 5 p.m. timing for the actual keynote itself. I think they're trying to squeeze in some new marketing juice right they're trying something new here i mean why not it's a bit of a more narrow less exciting event than the past few events uh the timing lines up with halloween so why not try something new and so it looks like that's what they're doing i don't think there's much more to it than the halloween theme okay and i mean yeah we, we got to talk about the timing like 5 p.m pacific time and it's the day before halloween so it's the day before a holiday it all feels a little weird so i have to ask you do you do we know? Do you know? Do you think was this event always in the plans or was this a last minute yes. scramble? OK, <clears throat> no, it's always been in the plans. I've been reporting since June or July that they were planning to introduce the M3 as early as October. Uh, so, yeah, this is this has been a long time coming. But this is one of the latest events they've ever held. I mean, it's at the very, very tail end of October. Uh, the reason being is that these three nanometer M3 chips are very hard to come by with a lot of the allocation at TSMC going to the 15 Pro, the A17 Pro chip there. And so they really needed to wait until they can get as many chips as possible. And even so, uh, I think these are going to be in pretty limited quantities from the get-go. Interesting. We'll we'll, we'll see. So supply constrained for sure. Now, um, there's talk of uh, the 24-inch iMac. And, you know, I I have to say, it's still on the small size screen-wise. I mean, 24 inches. Um, how long until we see a larger screened iMac, if ever? I don't. You don't report that that's going to be at this event, right? There won't be a larger iMac at this event. That will happen at the tail end of next year or sometime in 2025, I'm told. But this has been in development for a little bit of time now, and it's a 32 inch. So, looking forward to that. Yeah, that that's uh that's exciting. Um, and I guess. How kind of outside of of the atypical nature of the time and the date, um, how typical is this product rollout in terms of it being these MacBook Pros, this iMac? Is this kind of in the, the typical cycle of Apple for announcing new MacBook Pros? 
Yeah, I would say so, right? Like the last MacBook Pro came out in January of this year, but it was actually scheduled for October of last year. Mm-hmm. And then remember when things at Foxconn and some of the other Apple production facilities in Asia shut down because of um, the COVID situation there at the tail end of 22 and the chip shortage was still going on at the tail end of 22. And so they didn't want to get off track. And so they brought it back to what was always planned for the third generation Apple Silicon MacBook Pro. Uh, which was for release in October of this year. So, uh, yeah, it's pretty typical okay. in terms of MacBook Pro releases. Yeah, because remember the first Apple Silicon high-end MacBook Pro that came out in October of 2021. So it should have been M1 in October 21, M2 October 22, M3 October 23, but you had that three-month delay from October to January for the M2 version for the reasons I described. So they're back on track. Or they will be in a week from now. Yeah, exactly. Um, I guess then I am also just curious uh, because there, there's been a lot of doubt that there would be an event, and that doubt you you never you never uh, what is it when you're playing chicken you never dodged. <laughs> it's kind of you know what I'm, I'm expecting mm-hmm. this. I'm it's planned to be happening um, for the people because we do have some people who like to really pay close attention to rumors and reports and everything. Can you talk a little bit about um, you know where your what what causes that certainty for you and maybe why some people ended up dodging when they were playing chicken and saying, okay, maybe there's not going to be a, a Mac event in October. Um, I think some of the idea of why there would be no Mac event in October came from the fact that there was no iPad. And so I think that naturally led to speculation that if there's no iPad, Apple wouldn't do a Mac only event because typically when they do these fall events, they sort of couple the iPad and the Mac together but no iPads until spring next year. And so they're going Mac only. I particularly think that the M3 chip is enough uh, for uh, an event. And again, this is not an in-person showcase, right? So they're not going crazy about this. It's just going to be an online video. They have invited some media, uh, not including myself, to New York for a a screening there and hands-on time in Tribeca. Uh, So that will still happen. But no Steve Jobs Theater, uh, not rolling out the red carpet, no big hands-on in Cupertino. So a little bit of New York and for 99.999% of the world, uh, it'll be online. Okay. I, so I just want to reiterate what you said. There were, there will be some media who get to go to an event or who've been invited to an event for this specific Mac event that was right around the corner. Did, does that mean that they learned about it whenever the event was announced and have, you know, after plans to, to head to New York? Apple reached out after the event announcement online about the virtual event, inviting, you know, some content creators and media to, uh, they have this loft in Tribeca. So I assume it'll be there Got it. Um, to, to watch the keynote. And I'm assuming there'll be some hands-on area there as well. Maybe dinner given the hour, right? Maybe they'll bring, <laughs> they'll have food and watch. No, I'm serious. Like they'll have food. Maybe they'll do some Halloween themed stuff. Who knows? But that will be kicking off at uh, 7 30 PM uh, on Monday in New York. Okay. And like, you know, start today. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Um, and then I guess my last question for you, uh, because since that uh, piece came out, you have uh, released another one about AirPods. So I was hoping you could give us just a few details about uh, Apple's plans for AirPods, not at this scary fast event, of course, but a um, uh, little on down the line. And then, of course, we'll point people to your newsletter for more. So right now, as you both know, and everyone watching knows, if you're an Apple fan, there is 
we're not talking about headphones here. We're talking about the AirPod, yeah. AirPods earbuds. There's three types. You have the second gen, you have the third gen, and then you have the AirPods Pro, right? The third gen, they're not selling so well. The problem is that it's not, you know, better enough than the second gen AirPods Pro other than the shorter stem to want to pay the extra money. And you also don't get noise cancellation. So it's not really good enough to buy either. And it's sort of created this mid-tier problem for Apple where the mid-tier is not selling so well. The AirPods Pro are doing great. The low-end AirPods are still doing great. But they do need to, you know, compete better with the, the earbuds from Samsung and Sony and Jabra and Bose and whomever. And they need to keep updating these as they become an even important seller for the company. So what they're doing is they're going to get rid of both the second and the third gen AirPods and release two fourth generation AirPods that look the same, differentiated with the higher end version, I guess the new mid-tier, having noise cancellation and having the charging case with the Find My speakers. Both of those will also get USB-C on their cases. And there'll be a new AirPods Pro redesigned, new chip, um, in a new case in 2025. And then for those wondering, the AirPods Max will get USB-C and new colors, but nothing else uh, at the end of 2024. And those new low-end AirPods are also at the end of 2024. Wow, they're they're keeping the AirPods Max around. Uh, you know, I've I've seen an increasing number of people with those, and it's it's always shocking to me because that's it's quite the price point. Um, they're very popular. They're very popular despite the price. Um, but for the time being, there's no reason. Even though they're popular, they're still low volume. And they're expensive. There's no reason to really add new features. Mm-hmm. They're going to do the bare minimum, which they have to do legally, which is the USB-C. Got it. Got it. Well, Mark Gurman, I want to thank you, as always, for your insights and for uh, giving us kind of a, a preview ahead of time. Always someone that I look to whenever I'm trying to figure out what's uh, going on with Apple mm-hmm. next. Uh, so thank you for the great work. Of course, folks can head over to Bloomberg. Bloom. Bloomberg, no, Bloomberg, and check out the Power On newsletter. Uh, is there a place they can go to follow you online to keep up with what's going on? Yeah, you can follow me. I guess it's x, x.com slash Mark Gurman, threads um, slash Mark Gurman. I'm on Mastodon, however you pronounce that, uh, <laughs> now that everyone's on everything, right? Right. And uh, Bloomberg.com slash Power On to subscribe to Power On. We have obviously a free column, and that comes out every Sunday. Very popular, I may add. And um, you can check out my preview actually tomorrow on the event as well. So lots to look into. And I appreciate you both as always having me on. And I can't wait to come on again soon. Thanks so much, Mark. Thank you, Mark. Thank you both. Take care now. Take care. All righty, folks. And before we get to our final story of the week about one of those social media companies, uh, let's take a quick break so I can tell you about Duo, who are bringing you this episode of Tech News Weekly. Duo protects against breaches with a leading access management suite. You get strong, multi-layered defenses and innovative capabilities that only allow legitimate users in and keep bad actors out. For any organization that's concerned about being breached that needs protection fast, Duo quickly enables strong security while also improving user productivity. Duo prevents unauthorized access with multi-layered defenses and modern capabilities that thwart sophisticated malicious access attempts. You can increase authentication requirements in real time when risk rises. Duo enables high productivity by only requiring authentication when needed, enabling swift 
easy and secure access. Duo provides an all-in-one solution for strong MFA, passwordless, single sign-on, and trusted endpoint verification. And Duo helps you implement zero-trust principles by verifying users and their devices. So, start your free trial and sign up today at cs.co slash twit. That's cs.co slash t-w-i-t. And thank you, Duo, for sponsoring this week's episode of Tech News Weekly. All right, Jason Howell, take it away. All right, I'm curious about this one. Curious to hear what you have to say about this. One year later, we are now one year after the muskification of Twitter that led to the exification of Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) We've seen a number of alternatives pop up. You know, some of them declaring outright, like, we are the Twitter alternative. We keep close to the source, you know, of what you liked about Twitter. Um, all of the, I think all of them want to kind of like fill that hole to some degree. Right. Um, and it's been it's been a little challenging, I would say, as, as far as like social media and and um, kind of the experience of updating social media and knowing where to put our attention and everything, at least for me, it's been pretty noisy. Right. Mastodon, Blue Sky, Threads, Post.News. I mean, there have been so many of these. And there is another one that we will talk about today that for some reason, I never really tried it out. Like, I'm not even entirely sure why I never did, but I didn't. And that was T2, mm-hmm. eventually renamed uh, Pebble, which we'll talk about in a second. But um, T2 originally was founded by uh, some Twitter alumni in November of last year, right about this time when things were falling apart <laughs> or changing, let's say transitioning over at Twitter um, into the Musk era. In April, it opened its invite system for the current 1,000 users. So by April, they had 1,000 users. They said, hey, you can invite people, friends, families. And then anybody that got on the platform, I think, had the ability to invite others. Mm-hmm. It was September when the company branded rebranded from T2 to Pebble. Um, T2, by the way, I'm assuming that means like Twitter 2, well, even though I want to say Terminator we, 2. It, it definitely was, but they okay. would not obviously acknowledge that. Right. That would get them in trouble. So, it was, sure. yeah, it was just a little hint that we're trying to be the second Twitter or the new coming of Twitter. Yeah. I could not get over the fact that it was T2. And I like, this is just a, si- a sign of the fact that like I'm a child of the eighties, <laughs> but I see T2 and I will always think Terminator 2 because it was such a big deal right. back then. And it was a great movie. Um, so, you know, maybe that was it. I don't know. Maybe that's what kept me off the, the platform. Uh, now they have announced that the service is shutting down. That happens effective here in a few days, November 1st, 2023, which basically means that it lasted a year from the time that it started developing. I mean, when you consider that only April, you know, they opened it up from a thousand users into an invite system, Mm -hmm. Uh, not very long time. So it did not last very long, which is kind of surprising. It was designed to resemble, like I said, a pre Elon Musk Twitter, uh, 200 character, sorry, 280 character limit. Uh, direct messages, checkmark verification, although in this case, it does carry a one-time, or did, or I guess it still does, uh, carry a one-time $5 fee to cover the cost of the verification through, I think it's Persona, I could be getting that wrong, but anyways, there was a cost associated with it initially, but I don't think in the same approach that that Musk was like, you know, was using it, uh, or has been using it. Um, at its height, it only had 20,000 users. Wow. Um, really? Which is 
wow, that's, that's not very many than at many all. Towns. Yeah. I think at that point, if you're this far in, you're like, yeah, this just there's something not working here. Um, never had a dedicated app. That could be a part of the problem, uh-huh. right? It was really reliant. It was entirely reliant on the web app. And had they had a dedicated app, would that have increased things maybe? Um, but it was founded by, like I said, former Twitterers, one of them being Sarah Oh, who was the former human rights advisor at Twitter. And the whole platform was designed around this idea of safety um, above all else, essentially. Mm-hmm. The safety, respect, moderate content moderation. The founders still believe um, in that drive to con- uh, to moderate content and uh, keeping things as safe as possible. Now they're saying that perhaps they focus too deeply on being a kinder and safer platform when compared to some of the other ones, which I mean, I mean, those aren't bad things to be right. <laughs> to be kinder and safer. Like, uh, yeah, you'd think <laughs> nothing that. wrong with that. But, uh, you know, apparently they're saying maybe that's part of the reason why it didn't resonate. Um, Sarah O told TechCrunch, we're at an inflection point, and I think this is true. We're at an inflection point in social media. I think we'll look back and see this past year as a really important turning point for the role that social media plays in our lives. And um, I don't know that that necessarily is that comment is necessarily made to say that T two. You know, we'll look back and T two will be this major milestone right. moment. But it does really feel like the last year has been a moment, a, a time of recalibration around what we, as users, anyways, really want out of social media. What are we willing to accept? Um, do we actually want to continue using social media the way we were? Right. You know, it kind of forced some sort of a recalibration. I don't know where that's leading, but, um, but yeah, I never used Pebble and I'm curious if you did. I did. I I had T2. Actually, I should be clear. I never used Pebble. I only used T2, uh, meaning that when it hit, by the time it had changed to Pebble, I had stopped really using it. Um, I'm getting my, my little download of my data now um, because I haven't logged in since since then Um, and you know I liked how it was familiar Um, that part was nice like the experience was very familiar to Twitter by comparison because I mean some of these others like they're they're familiar ish also they're familiar ish but they it was it looked like Twitter it's yeah yeah, everything was what Twitter was before Elon came along. And so it really did feel familiar. And I think that helped. But yeah, the lack of an app was one reason why I didn't keep using it. Um, And just a general, yeah, my whole sort of feeling about social media or my behavior surrounding social media has changed in general. Um, So I know that played a role because now I like there's so much energy involved in just posting a thing because yeah. I know my, some of my audience is over here and Where some of my audience go? over there and some, and I just, yeah, I do. You, do you broadcast the same yeah, thing to all platforms? It's that do you, do you yeah. only, sometimes it's, I'll, you know, put the same thing in four places. Yeah. Sometimes it just goes to one. And so I just, I, it's too much work. Um, and it didn't use to feel that way. And so I, yeah. And I, because it's, I don't know, it's like um, being in an abandoned school and in each of the classrooms are a few of my friends and I have to run through this entire abandoned school and go into the classroom to have a conversation with these friends and then leave and then run down the hall and then find the other classroom and have a conversation with those friends. And then, and by the time I'm just oh, worn out, 
except it's all mental instead of any yeah, physical right. aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's a job in and of itself. Yeah, it to, is. To and I, like it, it's updating a, all these things. Right. And what am I getting out of it? Well, yeah, I think, and I think that's maybe part of, of what's, you know, what's driving, uh, the last year of people, you know, kind of feeling like there's, there's less stability. Like it used to be obvious what place we would go. And actually at the same time though, Twitter, by comparison to all a lot of other social media platforms, was pretty small user base. It was a smaller but user it was, base, but, but but for the people who were there and yeah. who enjoyed, like it was, it was the place to go. And especially among journalists, um, now I, this is the latest thing that I've seen. Everybody is talking about how they don't go to Twitter anymore for news because everything there is just disinformation or misinformation, mm. and how that you know Twitter people used I to make used to fun go to of Twitter Facebook a lot for news, right? I'm because honest. it would it'd be breaking, we'd be able to mm-hmm. find it, and it would be stuff that you could trust. And yeah, now and like I said, we used to make fun of Facebook for being the place where you would not go get your news yeah. because if you did, it was going to be fake. Now you can't find news on Facebook anymore. Yeah, exactly. Facebook you can't find news on Facebook. We don't do that. And on X, formerly known as Twitter, it's a bunch of garbage. Yeah. And so, yeah, I don't know. I, that, that also has played a role. I, it's not the first place that I go anymore. Yeah. And, and the rare occasion when I do post, I, I then constantly find myself asking, what am I doing? This why? Time? Yeah. Why? why? Yeah. The, the amount of times I pull up a thing and I, and I like type out the thing and then I look at it and I'm like, <laughs> You know, I don't really need to send this. Sometimes it's just like typing it out is enough. Yeah. Okay, I've got, like, okay. I got what I needed. I got that out of my brain. I see the words. I can move on because I always, you know, there in the, I'd say the last two or three years of my Twitter usage, when I was actually updating on a regular basis, more times than not, I would write out a thing and then I'd look at it and my my brain would tell me, Wait a minute. Do you really want to put that out there? Like, I realize this is this is what you want to say, but what is the consequence to saying this? Is it that person, you know, that that group of people responding or is there the potential that someone's going to take it out of context? And Mm -hmm. then you're going to be dealing with that bandwidth, you know, that emotional Mm -hmm. kind of like baggage. And at a certain point, I ended up not posting more than posting, even though I went there to post. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when I started recognizing that, I was like, well, then why, why do I continue doing it? Other than this feeling of like obligation, like because I do what I do and because I truly do like the people that, that I interact with, you know, through our shows and everything, like community is really important to me. And so that seems like a tool for me to stay connected with, with community. But then there's the bad side of that. That was bad enough that it pulled me away. And so I'm always kind of conflicted around it, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. I I know exactly what you're talking about. It's uh, that how you can recognize other people who've been extremely online because when they say something, then they quickly follow it up by hedging and trying yeah. to explain what yes, they were saying. Right. And it's because we've all like typed that thing out and then had the argument with the five or six people you were expecting would reply to it and take what you're saying in a different way. Yeah. And so then you just like, you know what? No, actually I'm just not going to say anything. Maybe it's not worth putting yeah. that there, yeah. you know? So anyways, so there you go. I, uh, I am sorry for any of you who used T2 slash pebble and are sad to see it go. Um, you know, I'm, I, I guess I could still create an account just to see what I, what I have missed, but there, but it was interesting to me that of all these other services I signed up, I got my username, I checked it out for a while, but I never did with T2 and I still can't even put my finger on why I just didn't, it never sounded appealing to me. There was never, there was never a poll there for me. Hmm. And maybe it was the fact that they really didn't, 
you know, if, if they had an app, if they had, to, you know, you know what I mean? If they had an app, if they opened it up beyond the invite yeah, thing earlier was, when there was some momentum there or something, maybe they still were be not trying to move fast and break things. Yeah. And, and I, probably by design, yeah, right? Exactly. Like the, the, literally they were, yeah, they were trying to take it slow and do it right. And while I appreciate that stance, um, I think that, yeah, it just didn't work for most people who, mm. you know, could hop onto other platforms and get an account right away or whatever it happened to be. So, yeah. All right. Well, that's that. T2, Arnold Schwarzenegger, nothing to do with uh, the social media platform, but Arnie, I'm sorry. Your social media platform's gone. That's just the way it goes. Um, all right. Well, we've reached the end of this. <laughs> so, see, I can't help it. Uh, it will always be Terminator 2 to me. Tech News Weekly publishes every Thursday, twit.tv slash TNW. Uh, that is where you can go to subscribe to the show. And we hope that you do because subscribing to podcasts is very important for their longevity. Yeah, and you listening are probably subscribed because yeah, you're listening. So true. what we really would like for you to do is have a friend, friend or family member mm. subscribe. That'd be nice. And that means that doesn't mean tell a friend or family member about the show. It means sit over their shoulder and watch as they find Tech News Weekly on your podcast player of choice, and then direct their finger to the button that says subscribe or follow, depending on your podcast player of choice, and then celebrate them with an applause and perhaps a hug if they like them, as you see that they have truly subscribed to the show thereby keeping us around for even longer because you know that you have made a difference in not only the lives of your friends but also us here at twit that's that's all we ask whoa that's uh, all we ask that it's not much i was overcome by the spirit <laughs> of of subscription um i'm back now and i, I like can it. tell you uh to also consider joining club twit at twit.tv slash club twit uh if you head to twit.tv slash club twit to join the club starting at seven dollars a month or 84 dollars a year that is how much it costs to subscribe you will become a member who gets a lot of great things including every single twit show with no ads it's just the content you also get access to the twit plus bonus feed that has extra content you won't find anywhere else behind the scenes before the show after the show special club twit events um it has an an event that's just uh, around the corner quite literally today an escape room event that i'm very excited about about, as well as access to the members-only Discord server. If you're there in the Discord, that's where you'll be able to watch it live as we try to solve this uh, escape room in a box later today. And uh, later on, then you can watch it in the Twit Plus bonus feed. Again, $7 a month, $84 a year, twit.tv slash Club Twits. You'll also gain access to some great shows that are Club Twit exclusives, the Untitled Linux show, uh, Hands on Windows, which is a short-format show that covers Windows tips and tricks, Hands on Mac, which is a short-format show that covers Apple tips and tricks, uh, as well as home theater geeks from scott wilkinson uh where he has interviews reviews uh tips and tricks questions answered everything it's fantastic and ai inside the show from jason howell that covers artificial intelligence that's right uh again all of that is available to you if you become a club twit member twit.tv slash club twit if you would like to follow me online i'm at micah Sargent on many a social media network including the now sunsetting pebble uh, formerly known as t2 um or you can head to chihuahua.coffee that's c-h-i-h-u-a-h-u-a.coffee where i've got links to the places i'm most active online check out hands on mac later today again if you are a twit uh, or club twit member check out uh on sundays ask the tech guys which is a show where we take your questions we being leo laporte and myself take your questions live on air and do our best to answer them and then tuesdays you can tune in to watch ios today which i record with rosemary orchard uh where we 
talk all things iOS. Oh, and don't forget to tune in Monday around 5 p.m. Pacific time to the Twit live stream as Leo Laporte and I cover the special Apple event. Jason Howell, That's what about you? Right. Um, I was inspired by you, Micah, and <gasps> your chihuahua.coffee. Oh, nice. That's, That's right. coffee. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I need a place, and then I need a, a fancy URL for the place, so that because because my my username is not always the same in right. different places because there are other Jason Howells out there. So if you go to Raygun.fun, Raygun.fun, it rhymes. Yeah, I know. I loved it when I thought about it. I was like, okay, that has to be it. Raygun.fun, you will find all of the links to all the places that you can find me, uh, not including T2 because I'm not on T2 or Pebble or whatever you want to call it. So go there, Raygun. Raygun. Dot fun. See, there it is. Ooh. I was so inspired by you, Micah. It's a great, great uh, service. Yeah, Bento. Bento. Love it. Uh, all stuff can be found there. Uh, thank you to everybody here in the studio for helping us do the show each and every week. Anthony Nielsen's here. John Slanina's here. Uh, you know, Burke, Burke was behind the scenes testing folks and getting us ready to go. We couldn't thank you enough because we couldn't do this show without you. Uh, and thank you at home or wherever you happen to be for watching and listening. We'll see you next time on Tech News Weekly. Bye-bye. Bye, Hey there, Scott Wilkinson here. In case you hadn't heard, Home Theater Geeks is back. Each week, I bring you the latest audio-video news, tips and tricks to get the most out of your AV system, product reviews, and more. You can enjoy Home Theater Geeks only if you're a member of Club Twit, which costs 7 bucks a month. Or you can subscribe to Home Theater Geeks by itself for only $2.99 a month. I hope you'll join me for a weekly dose of home theater geekitude.